Father, as we prayed earlier, please fix our eyes not on things temporal of this life, but on things eternal. And that's uh, the prayer for this passage. Uh, Please, Lord, help us to concentrate now in a hot day and a tricky passage. Would we hear your voice? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the men's breakfast yesterday, we were talking about midlife crises. It's funny enough, one way or another, we always end up talking about midlife crises at the men's breakfast. I don't know how we always get onto it. But anyway, we, we had this discussion and we made a, a few observations. So we noticed that young men, they often set out into adult life full of optimism and hope. They want to get the top job, they want to get into the inner circle at work, they want to find a beautiful wife, buy a house, have children. Young men are commonly marked by optimism and hope. By midlife, however, men are more commonly marked by disillusionment. Some are despairing at the fact that all their goals haven't been met, so their job is horrible, they haven't managed to marry, uh, they'll never get on the housing ladder. Others, though, are despairing because they have met their goals. They've hit the top, but there's nothing there. They've elbowed their way into the inner circle, but it's empty. They've married a wife, they've had kids, they've bought a house and still not satisfied. So by midlife, with their bodies beginning to decay, with the realisation of mortality starting to set in, what, what do they do? Well, here are three things. Some make hedonism their goal, to accumulate as, as many experiences and pleasures in the short while they have left. So, uh, so here comes the convertible sports car, here comes the pricey sports equipment, uh, here comes the, the luxury holidays, hedonism. Now, others try escapism, so they numb themselves with alcohol, or uh, with uh, the TV box sets, or with computer games, preferring the imaginary online life to the reality of their own lives. Many use pornography, many look for an affair, escapism. Others try activism, keeping busy at all costs, never stopping in fear of the younger guys coming up from behind, convinced that if they keep busy, then happiness is is just around the corner. Activism. Now, I don't know if that broad brushstroke sketch of masculinity fits with your experience of life, the women are nodding. The men, are getting, <laughs> the men are sort of slightly startled. But friends, we'd be fools to think that Christians aren't tempted by these things. We really are. Our passage today is remarkably complicated, but the point is actually very, very simple. Our Lord Jesus, He knows what our hearts are like. And he wants to encourage us to relocate our security, our hope, our purpose, our identity, our lives. He wants us to relocate them away from those things which won't last and onto him. A solid foundation. So you'll see that's our our first point. If you're following on your handouts, if you're making notes, don't locate your life on what won't last. 
Look down with me, please, in your Bibles at verse 5. You'll need your Bibles open uh, to, uh, to make sure what I'm saying is what God has said. But look at verse 5. It begins with Jesus and his disciples taking a leisurely stroll around the, the temple area. It says this. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, the temple was a wonder of the ancient world. It was not only vast in size, it was breathtakingly beautiful. It was constructed out of these marble slabs, which are 75 feet long. That's about the distance from here to Keats Library down the road. That's what it was constructed out of, stacked on top of each other. Each of them were cladded with golden plates, which allegedly flashed like snow-clad mountains in the sun. Beautiful. It was like a a modern-day skyscraper, a symbol of power and wealth and strength and beauty. But most of all, this is this building, this is where God was thought to have dwelt with his people. So no wonder the disciples, they're walking around this building, they're so impressed. It must have been like standing before the Titanic, before it sets sail. The, the sheer size, the sheer majesty of this building. They're thinking, surely God cannot sink this ship. How beautiful. You've been with us over the past few weeks. We've seen, though, what the temple is really like. Whilst achingly beautiful on the outside, it was corrupt on the inside. Her leaders, we've met them all, they, 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 behind this outward veneer of religiosity, they're violently opposed to the kingdom of God. So instead of having a, a heart for the nations, they're greedily profiteering. Instead of having a heart for the poor, they're devouring widows' houses. Instead of heralding God's chosen king, they want Jesus dead. The temple was not what it was supposed to be. And so God himself would have to sink this ship. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. You need to appreciate this. What Jesus says here is absolutely shocking. The people of Jerusalem, they would have located their lives in and around this building. It was their identity. It was their purpose. It was their security. It was their hope. It was all bound up with this building. It seems so solid So stable, so secure. And yet Jesus says one day it's going to come collapsing down around them. He doesn't want his followers to build their lives on something which won't last. For me, the greatest TV show of all time is called The Wire. It's about a major crimes unit in in Baltimore, USA. And one of the main characters is called Jimmy McNulty. He's the best detective they've got. He's he's relentless in his casework. He never rests until his target is behind bars. He's fantastic. There's a great scene where he bursts into the office one day on his day off. And one of his fellow detectives is like startled to see him there. And and he's a detective called Freeman. He's the oldest, older type. And, And he challenges McNulty and says, what are you doing? Here's what he says. Tell me, Jimmy, how exactly do you think this is all going to end? With a parade 
with a gold watch, with a shiny Jimmy McNulty Day moment where you bring in a case so sweet that everyone gets together and says, oh man, Jimmy was right all along. This job will not save you. It won't make you whole. It won't fill you up. A good case ends. The handcuffs go click and it's over and the next morning you're back in the office by yourself until the next case. Boy, you need something outside of this here. You need a life. A life, Jimmy. Do you know what that is? It's the thing that happens while you're waiting for moments that never come. I wonder how many of us are making the same mistake as Jimmy McNulty, the same mistake as Jesus' disciples here, centering our lives on things which don't last, building our identity on top of sandcastles, placing our hopes in our jobs, in our homes, in our relationships, in our hobbies, our religiosity. Like the temple in Jerusalem, like the Titanic as it sets sail. These things might look really solid. They might look really secure. They might look immovable. But friends, one day they're going to all come tumbling down. And then what will we have? Jesus says, don't locate your life on things which won't last. Instead, here's our second point. Locate your life in the Lord. The disciples, they're, they're pretty disturbed, aren't they, by what Jesus has just told them about the temple collapsing. So in verse 7, they want to know, when? When is this going to happen? Look down with me. Verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? About 10 years ago, there was a, a great TV show. I've got a lot of TV show illustrations today, forgive me. A great TV show called Lost. Did anyone watch Lost when it was on TV? Yeah, a lot, a, lot of people, a lot of people saw it. It had a huge following. It was about a, a, a plane crash on a desert island. We're following the survivors. Lots of people watched it each and every week because every week there would be a ridiculous twist. Some, some extra complication would come in. We've no idea how it's all going to come together. We want to know, golly, how's this going to end? And it's only recently come to light that the makers uh, said in an interview recently they were making it all up as they went along. The writers were tasked with thinking up the weirdest possible things they could. Oh, let's bring in a polar bear. Or things like that. And they had no way of understanding it at that point. But later they would try and justify it. And that kind of explains why the final episode of Lost was such a crushing disappointment. We all wanted closure. We all wanted all the loose ends to come together. But they didn't. Now, as Jesus now answers his disciples' question about when the temple will be destroyed, the big thing I want you to see here is that unlike the writers of Lost, Jesus knows the ending. Despite all the twists, all the complexities, it's all planned out. So the timeline I've drawn on your handouts is going to help you. Look down with that with me now. The cross there represents when Jesus died, around 33 A.D., the, the broken house represents the temple when it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And the crown, that represents Jesus' return, which obviously hasn't, hasn't happened yet. And we're going to see all these events, they're connected. 
I'm aware whenever you teach on these sorts of passages, you kind of know these, these are sort of the happy hunting grounds of nutcases, isn't it? Um, conspiracy theorists, they love this sort of stuff. And, and Jesus knows how easily we might be fooled by these sorts of things. So in verses 8 to 11, he, he kind of sets out the general sort of things we're going to see in this final epoch, this final era. And the key thing here is that we're not to think that indicate anything in particular. So look down with me, verse 8. Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, don't be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. This description here is exactly what happened in the build-up to AD 70. Uh, various Jewish leaders and zealots, they claim to be military messiahs. They're there to, to kick out the Romans. And there's weird stuff happening at that time. The, emperor, uh, the, the historian Josephus tells us that there were um, like earthquakes and volcanic activity. There was even a comet in the sky shaped like a cross. And people sort of looked at these signs and what's going on in the world? And they, they thought, oh, these must be the messiahs. Let's follow them. But of course, they weren't the Messiah. And it wasn't the end. And the Romans came along, crushed the revolution, and crushed Jerusalem and the temple with it. They didn't watch out, and they were deceived. So Jesus says to us, watch out, you are not deceived in these last days. There's a website, I was on it this week, called Rapture Ready. Are you rapture ready? It claims to be a useful tool to help us work out how soon we are to the end. So it takes into account all different world events, natural disasters, religious revivals, everything going on in the news, and it gives each of these events a prophetic number. And then totaling up these numbers together gives us our rapture index. Here's what the author of the website says. You could view the rapture index as a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we are moving towards the rapture. Anything above 160 fasten your seatbelts. I checked uh, today's rating. We're today at 182. So fasten your seatbelts. That's quite scary. This guy works on a US airbase. I did my research. And it's scary stuff. Jesus says, watch out. You're not deceived. You don't need to, to obsess about every single event in our newspapers wondering, is this the end? Jesus is very clear here in verse 9. Wars and natural disasters, they'll always be around. These in themselves do not indicate the end. There may be chaos, but God isn't surprised. There may be uncertainty, but we mustn't be deceived. So then in verses 12 to 19, you'll see from your timeline, Jesus then tells us what will happen before 70 AD. Look down with me at verse 12. This is what happens before AD 70. Verse 12, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in you being your witnesses to them. But make up your minds not to worry beforehand about how you'll defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, 
not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you'll gain life. Sometimes when you're reading a novel, and that novel's part of a, a wider series, and you finish the novel, but cheekily they kind of include a little chapter at the end, which is sort of a teaser for the, for the next book in the series. They want you to go out and buy the next book. Well, this is kind of Luke's attempt to doing that with the book of Acts. He wants you to go and read the sequel, if you like. So th- these, this is a brief description of the book of Acts. And Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to use them to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So he wants them, instead of locating their lives and their purpose in and around the temple, he wants them to locate their lives and their purpose in and around getting the good news of Jesus out. And as they do this, he says, yeah, you're going to be hated. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to face death. You're going to face imprisonment. And yet, weirdly, did you see that? He says, not a hair on their heads will perish. You'll die, but not a hair on your head will perish. He says, you might die, but you can't die. You can't lose your life, your eternal life. Now, you need to know, of course, these verses aren't specifically about us. We shouldn't think this is about me. They're not specifically about us. They're about the apostles. But we shouldn't expect our experience of life to be vastly different. Because, of course, we share the same mission as the apostles, don't we? Witness the name of Jesus. We share the same dangers as the apostles. Hated for the name of Jesus. And like then, this is an encouragement. We're not called to be the cleverest or the most articulate. We're still called simply to be faithful and bold in speaking about our Saviour. In preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but keep thinking about our brother Moses. Um, He goes to the evening service. As you know, as we prayed for him earlier, he's facing deportation to Iran, where he could well be executed for his faith as a member of our church. And yet, um, he was there at the prayer meeting on, on Wednesday night and asked him, how can we pray for you? And he said, pray that I would stand firm and that I would keep the faith puts into perspective, doesn't it, some of the things we might fear if we mention Jesus to our colleagues. I came in this morning, there's a little bit of graffiti on our poster outside. It's tiny, isn't it? We might lose much in our service of Christ, but we can never lose our souls. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus goes on to prophesy in, in astonishing detail What will happen when the Romans come in AD 70? For the sake of time, we won't read through those verses. But um, you need to know that what Jesus says here happened exactly as he said it would happen. There's a a Jewish historian called Josephus, and he records in horrifying detail what happened when the Romans came to besiege this city. Many Jews, they, they, they uh, they fled to Jerusalem, thinking they'll be safer there than the countryside. Many Christians, heeding Jesus' warning here, they did the exact opposite and fled to the mountains. But Jerusalem, for all of her strength, for all of her beauty, she could not withstand the siege. And Josephus tells us in desperation, mothers resorted to eating the dead bodies of their children. Such was the horrendous 
starvation in the city. When the Romans finally breached the walls, 1.1 million Jews died, 97,000 were taken captive, and the temple was desecrated before being torn down to the ground. And of course, as we know, it's never been rebuilt since, over 2,000 years. If you've ever been on holiday to Rome, I encourage you to go there, it's great fun, um, you should visit the Arch of Titus, it's still standing. Titus is the general who led the attack, the siege on Jerusalem, and there's a particular relief on, on the side of this arch, which shows a, a Roman soldier standing, posing victoriously, his, his sort of foot on a helmet like that, looking bold. But behind him is a large sort of palm tree, and underneath this palm tree is, you see a young woman weeping. And archaeologists tell us that this, this represents uh, the utter defeat of Israel, palm tree, and Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us all this detail about AD 70 with any sense of glee or happiness. In fact, the last time he spoke about this, back in chapter 19, we saw it a few weeks ago. You remember, tears were, were rolling down his face, he was weeping. Because he knew that what would happen, he knew what would happen to Jerusalem if they rejected him as, as the Messiah. He, he knew they would go after false military messiahs instead, and, and they would then bring about this Roman destruction. He saw it all happening. He weeps. So, no, Jesus tells us this because he wants us to relocate our lives onto something that won't collapse. He wants us to place our purpose and our identity in him. So in verses 25 to 28, he now turns our attention to the day when he will return. Look down with me, verse 25. Verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea, People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. It's unlike the wars and natural disasters back in verses 8 to 11, which don't really indicate anything in, in, in particular. The signs here indicating Jesus' return won't be subtle at all. There will be unmissable cosmic distress in the heavens, on earth, in the sea. Creation itself, if you like, is it will be broken apart in anticipation of being made anew again. There will also be unmissable social distress as people run and hide in terror at the coming of the Son of Man as he comes to judge the earth. But notice there in verse 28 that for those who've located their lives in Jesus, this will be a great day. See, our heads, Christian heads, instead of being hung low in shame, they'll be lifted up in eager expectation because here comes our redemption, here comes our vindication. Here comes our security. Here comes our king. I love the music of Johnny Cash. And you might know the very last song he recorded before he died. 
was about this day. You might know it's called When the Man Comes Around. It's a great song. You should go hear it. Here's what Johnny sings. Hear the trumpets. Hear the piper. 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling. Voices crying. Some are born. Some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Johnny was looking forward to that day. I don't know, if if the prospect of Jesus' return, if that doesn't fill your heart with joy, perhaps we are locating our lives in things which won't last. In which case, we need to tune in for our final point. Look out for the Lord's return. Look at verse 29 with me. Verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I'm referring to the destruction of the temple. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do you see how Jesus cleverly connects AD 70 with his return? See, in winter, the same Britain, isn't it? In winter, most of our trees are bare, aren't they? Is that what we call deciduous trees? Nods? Thank you. I, that's long forgotten. Decidu- I almost said carnivorous trees, and that's completely wrong, isn't it? <laughs> deciduous trees. They're bare. But, but when you start to see leaf buds appearing and leaves popping out, you know, summer's on its way. And in the same way, Jesus said, when you see these things happening, when you see Jerusalem falling, you know that I am coming, that summer is on its way. But hang on, this is what you're thinking, isn't it? Hang on, it's been almost 2,000 years since he said this, Jesus. It kind of thinks, it seems unthinkable, doesn't it? Unthinkable that tomorrow or today, Jesus might suddenly return. The world, it seems so solid, it seems so unshakable, so immovable but of course that's exactly what the disciples thought about Jerusalem you know that I'm coming Jesus says you know that I'm coming this world won't last but my words will on the west coast of Thailand on Boxing Day 2004, people were there on the beaches, and eyewitnesses described a strange phenomenon. Suddenly, all the tides rushed out towards the ocean, revealing all this beautiful uh, coral and rock pools. And many thought it was just lovely, wonderful, and they, they sort of went in around the rock pools and the corals to investigate. But other people on that day knew what that meant, that a tsunami was on its way, and they fled the beach. There might have been a delay between the sign and the tsunami. But those who didn't do anything were caught up in it. So we might laugh at these crazy guys with their rapture indexes. There are many of them. But at least they actually believed Jesus could come back at any point. I wonder if I really believe that. 
I mean, I, I definitely believe it here. I can recite the creed hand on heart, but do I really believe it in the way I live? Well, in verse 34, Jesus tells us how we can get ready. Look at verse 34. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. I think the shock here is remembering who Jesus is talking to. He's not addressing the unbelievers out there, but his closest and dearest followers in here. And he says the biggest threat facing us is not state persecution, but rather, verse 34, that our hearts will be led astray while we wait. He warns against three things. They might sound familiar. Hedonism, escapism, activism. He warns against hedonism, dissipation, he calls it. Escapism, hitting the bottle, numbing ourselves, drunkenness. He warns against activism, what he calls here the anxieties and the busyness of life. Think for yourself for a moment, in your head, which of those three are what you're drawn to as we wait? Apparently when the Titanic was sinking, all the crew members obviously were below deck desperately trying to close doors to try and keep the whole ship afloat. But eyewitnesses say on that day that on the deck, people were making cocktails with the bits of ice which fell off the iceberg and onto the deck. Other people were making snowballs and having snowball fights. To the crew, it was action stations. To others, it was playtime. Look at the worldwide church today, and you get a very similar picture. To many in our world, often where persecution is the fiercest, it's action stations. The gospel is flourishing. Jesus is on their lips, and boy, are they suffering for it. And they're longing for Jesus' return. Whereas I suspect many of us here, in the prosperous West, we're simply mixing drinks and throwing snowballs. Many of us, we don't even talk about Jesus amongst ourselves here at church, let alone with an unbelieving friend. While we wait, what is going to keep our hearts from drifting away from Jesus as we wait? Jesus gives us two practical things we might do. And with this, I'll close. Verse 36, he encourages us to pray for the kingdom. You know the Lord's Prayer. We pray it all the time, don't we? We pray, Lord, your kingdom come. And think about those words, your kingdom come. What are you praying for? You're praying that he would return soon. Wouldn't it be a helpful thing to begin each day on our knees saying, Lord, your kingdom come. Remembering the imminency of his kingdom. 
praying ourselves to become bolder witnesses. You can do this in your small groups as you meet. Pray that, that you'll remember the end is near and be bold. We can pray for the kingdom. But secondly, Jesus encourages us to listen to the king. I love the way Luke closes his account. and I won't read it, but the last couple of verses. Luke reminds us that what Jesus' focus is, what the basis of his ministry is. What's he doing? He's teaching the Bible. And early each morning, people are coming to him in the temple to hear him teach. Wouldn't that be a good thing for you to do each and every morning? To sit at the feet of your king. To open your Bible up. Read a few verses and help recalibrate your heart, relocate your identity away from all these things which won't last and onto the great God and Saviour, the Son of Man, who is soon to return. Friends, pray for the kingdom. Listen to your king. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray your kingdom come. Forgive us, Lord, when we have lived for this life, when we live for this life, when we slip into hedonism, escapism, activism, and the busyness of things just eclipse the reality and the beauty of your Son. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, would his return be all the more real to us? Would we see the signs and get ready? pray for some here today who perhaps don't know you as their Lord and Saviour, perhaps trusting in other things. Lord, show them their need for something which will last. Show them their need for Christ. Open their eyes. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.